This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Stealth failures that don't stop the plot. Howard Andrew Jones. Wendy Darling, police detective. And Isaac Newton's Alchemy. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. So just, well, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I didn't see that chair there. Oh, look, another chair. How is this happening? Robin, the gaming hut is full of stealth obstacles all of a sudden. How does that come about? And why do we want them? Right. Question mark. And I guess more importantly, how to have failure when the characters are exercising stealth, i.e. getting caught in a uh-huh. way that doesn't bork the story by taking it in a boring direction. So right. the typical thing while you're improvising a scenario or writing one down for other people to play is a break-in. And the characters mm-hmm. uh, stealth their way into a situation. But what happens if they fail their stealth roll? And the obvious thing to happen is, well, the cops show up or security shows up. But let's say the cops. And there might be, you know, one way that you come up with for them to get out of that situation, like fast talk the cops. But let's say that fails, too. Mm -hmm. Things are suddenly set up so that if this all goes sideways, they all get booked and taken down to the station or they end up fighting back against the cops. And you know which player in your group is the one who will try to fight the cops And then, again, now they're on the run, and they're uh, fugitives from the police, and, oh, well, how how are we going to get back to the story where you're supposed to go and find the clue in the electronic store that you were breaking into? And so this can be one of the most challenging subcategories of common things 
that players get up to in scenarios that particularly in a modern setting where there are security measures and things happen when you're caught breaking into stuff, how do we make that failure have a consequence, but be a consequence that doesn't go down that same boring road that you uh, already probably did the first time they failed a stealth roll? I would say, again, we can look at sort of the zeroth level of this question. Our beloved friend of the podcast, Will Hindmarch, has a game, Project Dark, that is basically all about this question, is, you know, how to make failure during a stealth part of the game instead of suddenly you're a game in which you fight cops. And his solution is you don't fail a stealth roll until something happens. And that right there opens up, I think, in terms of design space, not just for his game, but for scenarios, sort of an idea. And I I feel like there's a number of ways you can do it. One way that works pretty well is you have everyone do the stealth roll. You use the piggybacking method from Gumshoe, which is superb for this. Based on that result, you turn to the lead stealther and you say, you know. Right. And piggybacking, for those who don't know Gumshoe, is that right. everybody gets to chip in a little resources toward the person who's actually good at stealth so that you don't have the phenomenon as you would in real life where the clumsiest, most nervous person always gives it away and hits the alarm. Right. So in this case, you, you, you do the piggybacking, you get the result and you, based on the result, you turn to the lead stealther and you say, you know that with this crew, you've got 15 minutes in there before something goes wrong. And that lets the players redirect from, we're just going to walk around and touch everything to, we're just doing the mission. And then that sort of failure proofs you a little bit in one direction. Another possibility is to say, you know, sort of, you know, to the extent you can beginning in medias res and calling for that, that role rather than the role to break in, you do the role after they've broken in. And now the role is how long do you have? That's another way to basically do the same thing. And I guess finally, you have things like silent alarms. And then you know the silent alarm went off. Now you know you have three minutes because the cops, unless you're breaking into the police station, they're not already there. They have time to get here. And that gives you chances to make another escape roll, athletics, stealth, whatever it happens to be. Or maybe, you know, choke out the guard on the way out so that you uh, don't have to fight him with a with a noisy weapon. I mean, choking someone out is fighting them, obviously. But have the results not quite the, you know, loud ringing bells, everything goes sideways immediately, cops show up 30 seconds later, that would be an ambush, not a response. So there's a lot of sort of intermediate levels that you can do. And then there's the one where, well, you sort of failed, but maybe not bad enough to set off an alarm, but maybe bad enough to leave a fingerprint so that when the cops do show up, they've got your fingerprint now, or worse yet, the cult has your fingerprint, and that's even worse because that's got your essential oils, and now they can put that in a voodoo doll and, and send poppet monsters after you. Right, and that second one is a really good solution because that keeps the story going and keeps the story from being interrupted by the authorities. Because yes. the thing about these uh, sorts of solutions is you want to make sure you're not just kicking the problem down the road another role. So if characters only have X amount of time to do their thing, and that's their penalty. What if they don't do the thing that they're supposed to do to move the plot forward within that stretch of time? So again, Mm -hmm. you've got a a, a less interesting uh, failure point. Another uh, possibility is that when the security guards or the police show up, is that that's the one that is a success or a success at a price. 
So the police do come up, they roll up in their cruisers, and you can fast talk them. And if you fast talk them super well, that's the last you hear of them. And then if you don't, there's another complication that comes up later. And that again, that complication also has to be a not sending the plot in a boring direction sort of complication. Right. The the cult's informant in the police says, oh, no, there was a couple of, of hobos and dilettantes, but they weren't burglars. And then the cult is like, hobos and dilettantes, that's that's in our flash from Neothotep headquarters. We especially have to look out for them. Right. And that's having the world, your fictional setup, conspire with you, which is easy to do since you're making it up, <laughs> yeah. to ensure that everything remains within genre. Because, of course, whether it's a action thriller or a horror investigation, again, you don't see the regular police just showing up in the middle and then arresting everybody, like at the end of Monty Python, that there's always a reason. Either it isn't addressed at all. So like in an action movie, the question, why isn't there an investigation after this giant downtown shootout? It's like, well, presumably there is, but you're gone. We don't care. Right. But it, it is a category of, of failure where you have to be really careful where, and where it is sometimes difficult to come up with cool negative consequences. And one solution to that is to look further down into the plot into something that can be triggered later that could be interesting and fun. And so, again, that's the cultists show up or there's a bomb under your car or something else happens that is exciting and fun and, and keeps the story moving. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the whole notion is, you know, why are they breaking into the place? Uh, there's someone who wants it you know, they, they've got a dark secret there. How is it protected? All these questions you should have answered before the stealth. All of those should be able to create triggers that go off later in the story. You know, the thing that you've stolen, you know, you stole it wrong. You, you've left a little, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, a rod of many parts and you only stole most parts. And so one part is still back there. You've stolen the, the crown of, of, of serpent men, but you, you didn't take the egg that was underneath it. You right. Know, and you don't need the egg for the plot to move forward. The egg is a thing that prevents it from poisoning you. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the, the cult has a set of reactions that is not a dull set of reactions. Cause otherwise, why are you investigating a dull cult? Investigate a cool cult with a bunch of weird reactions. Um, the, the cops are not a monolith. You know, some cops just want to get over with. Some cops are like, you know what? I've always thought there was something weird about that camera store, dentist office, or whatever it was. I'm not really going to look into this that hard. And I will believe a plausible dilettante or hobo uh, if they give me a reason. Or maybe there's a cop who's actually fighting the cult in their own way, that the cult has done depredations and a cop recognizes, hey, someone is busting in. Now I'll just show up at his house and get the evidence that we need. That'll be a lot easier than doing, you know, hard cop work to, to pin it on him. Right. He can be, you guys stand back. I'll, I'll go into this uh, door that you've just busted open. And then, the, you know, horrible screams and things right. are suddenly worse for you. Yeah. Or, or that, you know, an individual policeman is your antagonist as opposed to the entire force. And that might be the cop that the cult has suborned or a cop uh, who's on a one man maverick mission to take down the cult. Either one is problems, but neither one is suddenly you're on wanted posters all over the city and you can't, you know, go back to your college class and teach parapsychology because otherwise you'd be let off in cuffs. Right. And is there another ability that when you fail it causes as much head scratching about keeping the story moving? This this one I think is is the number one bugaboo in that area. I mean, the if if you fail your explosives roll, it moves the story. It may just move it to a sudden right. ending. Well, it moves it to you but, having fewer hit points, which right, yes, or the same number, but they're scattered all over the room. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like 
stealth or any sort of avoid authorities, avoid notice is by definition, you run the risk of drawing in the authorities and then it becomes a different game, often a duller, stupider game than the fun game that you wanted to play. And I think that, you know, there's other ways to draw the attention of authorities. Missing with a gunshot sets off a gunfight, draws the cops, that kind right. of thing. And I guess another alternative then is have someone else show up other than the cops when you fail a stealth roll. So mm-hmm. instead of, you know, being interrupted by the regular authorities who are going to take you to boring town, you're interrupted by the ninja assassin or the, you know, reptilian creature or whatever it is. Or at least just by the cult security who are uh, up to their eyebrows in criminality. And so they can't go to the cops. It's like you're heisting the mafia warehouse. And instead of a exciting stealth, now you have an exciting gunfight. And none of it is back to quotidian, you know, booking and wanted posters level. Well, now that we've made this extremely exciting to sneak around, we're going to sneak around through this commercial to see what hot or other segment lies on the other side. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria and finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in boundary waters and my LA hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in high voltage kill and finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store or at the Pelgrane Press web store. Okay, it's time once again for Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. And this time around, uh, Ken and Robin, this is our first joint interview. Well, maybe not the first one you're going to hear, but the first one we're recording together since the great... them out of sequence. Since since the great unpleasantness. And if if there's anyone who can take the unpleasantness uh, out of our lives, it is Howard Andrew Jones, who's here to talk about... uh, Are you putting the the sword back in sword and sorcery or the sorcery back in sword and sorcery? I'm putting the sword back in sword and sorcery. That is good to hear. So you're here to talk about uh, your novel, Lord of a Shattered Land, uh, which is uh, one in a series. And uh, some of our listeners are very smugly going, uh, I've got most of those already. But for those who are about to purchase them, based on what you're about to say, briefly tell them what they're going to go and buy. Sure. Well, this is book one, and it just, I think, yesterday was its first day. Hopefully they've all run out and purchased it already, but in case they haven't, it's sort of like uh, 
the elevator pitch is Aragorn's Adventures if Sauron had won. The uh, longer pitch is, uh, so picture an ancient Mediterranean vibe, right? Gladiators, Spartacus, that kind of feel. And, um, and here's, here's the spiel. When the Durban Empire came for the city of Volanus, its people fought block by block, house by house, until most of them fell with sword in hand. Only about a thousand survived to be led away in chains. The Durvans sowed the ground with salt. They looted the treasuries. They set fire to the temples. The destruction seemed complete, but they had overlooked one thing. Hanavar, the Volani general, had escaped alive. Alone against a vast empire, he has only an aging sword arm, a lifetime of wisdom, and the greatest military mind in the world bent upon a single goal. No matter where his people have been taken, from the furthest outpost of the empire to its rotten heart, he will find them. Every last one of them, and he will set them free. So, folks, that's the voice to hear in your head when you're reading. Exactly. Yes, if you didn't get the audiobook, this is the audiobook. <laughs> so, obviously, there is sort of a uh, end of the Punic Wars. Hannibal doesn't commit suicide, but instead becomes Parker. Yeah. Situation sure, going sure, on. yeah, yeah. It, are the individual, because I know there's a bunch of short stories about Panavar, are they in the sort of um, caper challenge mode that you sort of laid out there, or are they more straightforward action adventure thrillers, or is it a mix? It is a mix. I tried to make uh, each one like a box of chocolates so you're not sure what you're going to get when you start. And they're all pretty tightly interlinked, but some of them are, have a lot more horror to them. Some of them have a little bit of comedy. Mostly, though, they're action and adventure with uh, sword and sorcery prominent. Uh, one man against impossible odds. Mm-hmm. Uh, surviving more by wiliness than strength, although sometimes, I mean, he's, he's no slouch with his weapon. Right. So Ken, uh, one of his watchwords is uh, he likes people who start with Earth. So you've started with Earth to some extent. So how much did you uh, start to bend the world, and what were your watchwords for uh, how much you depart from our world into a secondary world? Well, sure, since I wanted it to, since the main character is sort of based off of, well, not sort of, is strongly based off of my longstanding love of Hannibal of Carthage, the great general, I couldn't bend the sorcery so weird and out there that it had had a huge effect on his battles, or I would have had to completely change him. So it's a secondary world where there's an empire that feels very much like Rome. And it's, it's empire version Rome, not Republic Rome. I think people right. have more fun with yeah. emperors and gladiators. But most of the stuff we can have in our world, it's swords, it's uh, regular ships. So the magic that is there is dark and mysterious and rather dangerous. It's not, it's not uh, intercalated into everyday life. So I often talk about uh, series characters as being iconic heroes, as having a a pattern where they encounter a disorder in the world. Clearly, your character has encountered that disorder, and they overcome it in a satisfying repeat manner with an iconic ethos. There's a way that they solve problems that reflects who they are. Uh, So what is Hanavar's iconic ethos, if he has one? He is... Well, he's selfless, for one thing. Unlike the typical sword and sorcery hero, he's not in it for the golds and the women's uh, or the wines. He's really about saving his people. I, I, one of my favorite reviews of it so far was it's, it's like Prince of Egypt if Moses was played by Denzel Washington's version of The Equalizer. Mm-hmm. i got to charge out of that because that's kind of close. He's a man set on a mission. 
so he's selfless, but he's also the smartest man in the room. One of the things that always fascinated me about Hannibal, and I wanted to capture in this series, is just how smart this guy is. Picture Sherlock Holmes-level intellect without any of the, uh, the idiosyncratic baggage. And that's what sort of the Parker model popped out at me, the, the Donald Westlake slash Richard Stark Well, character. I love that you mentioned Parker because I love Parker. Yeah, well, I, if you didn't, then you wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, we, we check. But the notion of uh, the, the Parker, uh, he's super tough. He's, you know, uh, emotionally uh, cold and armored where he needs to be. But his real superpower is he's just, as you say, the smartest guy in the room. And there's not a lot of fiction that is actually about that. And are there ways that uh, Hanavar shows it off, or is it individually, story by story? Does he have sort of go-tos like Sherlock Holmes has disguises? What's his, oh, what's I his special you. sauce? Sure. Well, he doesn't rely too much on disguises, but he does have to go behind enemy lines. I mean, the mm-hmm. whole thing is set behind enemy lines. Right. So he frequently pretends to be this profession or that profession, but he, he doesn't really uh, don fake noses or anything right. like that. It's modus operandi is he has to scout out the situation, get a feel for it, and then find a way to get through. And is he attempting, obviously his medium-term goal is to free all of the people of his city. Is his longer-term goal then to bring down the corrupt empire in the ruins, to build a safe haven off in the barbarian wilderlands for them to hang out? Where, where does, because it's an empire, he's not an idiot, he knows that... You're you know, right, he's not an idiot. So... The reason he wasn't there when his city fell was because he was off founding a colony with a few thousand people. Ah, right. Right? And so he came back right to witness the fall. Mm-hmm. And an accident happened where the Durvins assumed that he was killed in the process. Mm-hmm. So now he's not really... He doesn't have time to worry about vengeance or revenge because the longer it takes to find these people, some of them are going to be in terrible circumstances depending mm-hmm. on what kind of slavery they were forced into. So he needs to get to them as fast as possible. He doesn't have time to waste on revenge. He just needs to get to his people. And so far, he hasn't revealed if he's got any longer-term goals than that. Right. So when you create a, a character who is the smartest character, that is an additional level of challenge when you're constructing the procedural obstacles yeah, that is. he has to overcome. <laughs> so how do you write... How do you build cool problems for him to solve knowing that he is so smart and is going to... Because uh, you have to be smarter than him even to t- design these, uh, these scenes and moments. Sure. Well, I did an Arabian fantasy series for St. Martin's a while ago, and that guy was a lot more like Sherlock Holmes than he was solving mysteries. And what I found experience writing uh, the De Beer and Seam stories was that I would set up a problem that De Beer could solve in like 30 seconds, whereas it might take me a few weeks. And so <laughs> I would set up these difficult situations, and I think, what would be an interesting way to solve that? So the, the way I structure these is I set them out and think about them for a long time before I just start writing them down, because he's, he's way smarter than I am. And sometimes, sometimes, occasionally, I'm sure you guys know, you come up with the idea and the solution at the same time. But a lot of times you don't. Now, are you ever tempted to cheat? I mean, the you know, this is like the author of Batman. You know, Batman's theoretically the smartest guy in the room, but sometimes it's just, oh, turns out he can punch that guy. Problem solved. <laughs> well, sometimes the way through is, is through martial forces. Yeah. And sometimes he gets stuck in a situation he didn't anticipate and he has to get out, as happens with Parker right, all, the, all time. the time. But even then, he's making it up on the fly and getting through because he's clever. And also his other secret power, Parker, is that he doesn't stop. Yeah, he's tireless. He's tireless, yeah. yeah. So how does what you're doing fit into the state of sword and sorcery in 2023? Wow. Well, you know, 
Sword and Sorcery has been on the back burner for a long time, and I'm starting to see, at last, a groundswell of attention. There's all these uh, wonderful small presses that have come out over the last few years and are promoting Sword and Sorcery, and so far I don't see a whole lot of attention from the main publishers except for Bain, and Bain's kind of having a summer of Sword and Sorcery. I'm one of several uh, authors who's come along from Bain in the last little bit. Uh, Larry Korea's uh, Son of the Black Sword, D.J. Butler's Intergent and Fix stories, which are sort of uh, Vancean, across with Liber. There's uh, uh, Gregory Frost's Rhymer book. And the reason I hesitate on that one, because I haven't read it yet. I'm sure once I read it, I'll, it'll come to me faster. And, and then, of course, there's uh, Tim Aker's Wraithbound, which is sort of a cross between epic fantasy and sword and sorcery. So you would be one of the... If, if we had the... The Weird Tales Musketeers today, you'd be one of those musketeers yeah, I feel like charge. I feel like we're the tip of the spear. Right, yeah. And is there something different now about writing sword and sorcery in our, in our contemporary context? Are there uh, things that you have to approach differently than previous authors of the past? Well, there's things I want to approach differently. I love the, the pacing and the mystery and, and the momentum and the, the horror and the sense of thrill of adventure. But I'd like to leave the suspect racism and sexism in politics on the back burner, thanks. I don't want to go there. And I think all of, well, almost all of us, I'm not talking about the Bain folks, I'm talking about outside. I think all of us recognize that. We can keep the good and go back to the well for that and leave some of the other stuff back there. Yeah, right. You don't have to be a monarchist to do Henry V, so why should you have to be a weird cowboy racist to do sword and sorcery? Right, and it's like... So many of the women in those old stories were just objects to be rescued, right? And, and I think, well, you, you guys have read the work. You know mm-hmm. that there's independent and very strong and capable women all through right. the book. Well, there's a, there's a real dichotomy in Howard, and I'm not going to necessarily say it's true of everyone, although Liber does it as well, where there are very clearly two types of character. There are characters with agency and characters Without. who are acted upon by definition. Right. And Howard's... You know, heroes and many of the heroines that he meets on the path are the first kind, but lots of characters are just sort of mushed up into the background. And I think one of the things that is more enjoyable, if you can work it in, and not everyone can or needs to, is to make everyone look like they, oh, that might be a character, oh no, he just got stabbed. You you, you want to feel a little more of the humanity of everyone around in the story. Sure, I, I like what you say about agency, and I think, you know, some of the writing wasn't because the particular people held those views, but because that's what sold. I mean, the example I always like to cite with Robert E. Howard is he wrote, he tried to launch a series about a female warrior named Dark Agnes, and he wrote two and a half stories. The reason he only wrote two and a half stories is because that no one bought the first two. Right. And yeah. he sold them around, and uh, you can get them now in a Del Rey reprint the, uh, of his historical fiction, but no one wanted them that. Yeah, it was it was a it was a heavy lift to even do you know Gerald of Jory back then, much less right. Yeah, right. So, a thing that interests me about the way that uh, fantasy writing is going now is that there's sort of a a mainstream that is more and more, I think, influenced by uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, and the language is becoming much more casual. So that even in an epic fantasy with uh, ogres and dwarves and elves and stuff, there's a sense of language that uh, is almost sort of casual, that is almost sort of uh, you can picture some of these characters tweeting. Um, <laughs> you, however, within the context of what you're doing, are sticking to a more 
classical style, and uh, one of the things that really engaged me about your piece was the the richness of the language and the willingness to evoke a more uh, formal, more stylized version that, uh, frankly, is more work uh, to write in that <laughs> vein. So how do you approach prose uh, in determining uh, what is the correct style for your piece, which happens to be within the sword and sorcery basket? Well, I want it to sound good read aloud, but I don't want it to feel overburdened with too much description. I want it to be as clear as possible and also to have to be precise as possible. So I find myself in a weird place where I want it to have hard-boiled streamline but also be uh, descriptively rich. And I guess that gets me there. I don't want my characters to sound like they could tweet. I don't want them to be full of modern snark. They might be sarcastic. They might uh, have moments of uh, humor where they're poking fun at things, as I think people have done throughout history, unless they're in front of a dictator or a servant. But I don't want them to sound modern. I want them to sound of their place and time. I think it feels more real that way. So when you're revising, you know, which is always the, uh, you know, spoiler, not fun part of writing, <laughs> when you come across a word and you uh, ask yourself, or a phrase, and ask yourself, is this a word or phrase that goes in this book? How do you determine that? Well, fortunately, I have a brilliant beta reader whom I happen to be married to. My wife is really good at spotting that stuff. But i got to tell you, after working for a couple of years on the historical Arabian stuff, it's a lot simpler for it to just leap out at me. I'm used to it at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, you just have an, an instinct for something that smells wrong or sounds you know, post-1900. Right, yeah. right. And how much do you restrict yourself in terms of, uh, you know, when was this word coined? Well, I have a little bit of freedom because I'm working in a secondary world. Uh, you know, if we get bent out of sh- too bent out of shape, it's like, well, that that word is actually uh, a French <laughs> a French origin. So what's it doing here when these people are speaking Latin? But haha, they're not actually speaking Latin because this is all this is all being translated from some foreign language in a different world. So yeah. we're okay. It didn't slow flow bear down when he's writing Salambo. So right. there we are. <laughs> so my my test with this is Adam's apple which refers to our contemporary mythology, and there's not a better word for it. I know. Do you I, never refer to people's names? I never refer. I, you know, Hanover's punched some people in the throat. Right. <laughs> you, can't, you can't hit their Adam's apple or their Achilles tendon because he's in a secondary world. Yeah, he's right. Actually right. less powerful. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. I, I sliced him in Biff's tendon. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean, right? I, I think the thing that uh, kept throwing me off when I first started trying to write historical fiction was I kept wanting to use uh, seconds or... Or uh, inches. Yes, right. No, no. But you read the historical fiction, stuff like, uh, it was two spear lengths tall. I'm like, oh, I like that. You know, you steal these measurement terms as you're reading historical fiction, and you can drop it into your fantasy. Or or so many hands. Your notion about, or your notion, your your credo about it has to sound good read aloud. I think that was Poole Anderson's rule. Oh, really? was when he was writing. He was always making sure that if he read it, if his, if his wife got bored, he would like, okay, that's bad. I have to change it. <laughs> well, I think we have to be uh, pay particularly close attention to it because it seems like more and more people read books via listening to them on audio. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I, I actually used to love the whole... I know Hemingway is not the guy who invented it, but he certainly made it popular where it's a whole chain of, of dialogue, and you can tell who's speaking. Mm-hmm. But if it's an audio book, no. Yeah, so no I've, punctuation. Right? So, and one guy's reading it, or one gal. So I've added in a few more saids or dialogue sort of tags with audio people in mind. 
And so uh, while you're revising, are you hearing it in your head read, or are you pacing around the room reading it aloud? <laughs> Both. I read it out loud so many times before the final version. Uh, my voice gets hoarse. Now, I know that in adventure fiction, authors are blessed, let us say, with an activist audience that has very strong opinions about how, in fact, you stab a guy. Is this a thing that you worry about? Do you you know, go to like recreational medieval martial arts stuff, or is it just, look, Robert E. Howard stabbed a guy this way. It's good enough for me. Well, I hold a third-degree black belt. I still practice regularly. I attend a dojo at least once a week. So I know how a body moves in combat. I've been in a lot of sparring. I know how you defense and how someone who's under attack thinks. Now, I don't have particularly strong expertise with swords, although I've taken a few sword classes. But I use that to inform everything I do. And, of course, I've spent an awful lot of time reading fun action fiction. And it's interesting. Once, once you've done that, you start to see scenes in movies like, well, that's... That's ridiculous. It's fun, but it's ridiculous. Right. Or, wow, that looks that's totally wrong. I would never write that. Mm -hmm. It can't be done. Well, on that note, where Howard has told us if uh, you don't like his book, he can beat you up. <laughs> I think we have to thank him for sitting down with us. and uh, Thank him politely. Thank him very politely. <laughs> uh, so thanks a lot, Howard. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. The best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from being hauled off to the slammer by joining such stealthy Patreon backers as... Brian K. Eason. Andrea Coletta. Darren Hennessy. Derek McMullen and Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Snivgrits asks Ken and Robin, Some of my favorites among the older episodes have Ken and Robin take turns nerd troping on writing screenplays where fictional characters are put into film genres, like putting Wendy Darling of Peter Pan into a police procedural. I vote you do something like this again. Well, Robin, let's do something like this again. Right. Well, I'm going to change the brief slightly, because when I thought of a Wendy Darling police procedural, I, of course, thought of a television series. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to come up with something that we're going to uh, pitch to a network. Right. And I want to pitch to a network on the grounds that the episodic format is the one that I think works best for this. You could 
probably pitch this to Netflix, but they'd want to serialize it. And also they would cancel it after two seasons. Right. And also uh, we're not doing a lick of work until the writer's strike is over. That's I want right. that to be known. Yes. Netflix. We may be recording this during the writer's strike, but it's not going to come out until afterwards. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> Let's hope. So the show is called Darling. And there's two ways that you could go with this. One way is it could be, you know, set in the original period, uh, which is what I think that if we have to then take it and sell it to Netflix, we might repackage it into a period thing. That's sort of thing they would be into. Network, I think more often want something contemporary, especially if they're going to shoot a lot of episodes. They want it to be cheap, put it in the present day. And the show is just called Darling, and mm -hmm. she is a homicide detective, and uh, you see her uh, going about her daily routine, and she gets a particularly weird case uh, during the pilot, and there is a, a murderer on the loose who doesn't seem like your ordinary, typical sort of serial killer, and sort of odd gothic things start to happen. And near the end of the episode, after she arrests the suspect and breaks them down in the interrogation room and starts to realize that they're under some strange influence she becomes particularly worried and she takes a trip to the uh, local federal prison and arranges to speak to her ex-husband peter who is uh, doing a long stretch in prison for something that doesn't get specified in this uh, uh, pilot episode and begins to ask him questions about what's going on and what happens is uh, that he reveals that Yes, it looks like one of the periodic portals that opens up has, in fact, opened up into the, the regular real world that they both came into, grew up in, grew apart in, and then he went on a dark path. And I, I think in order to make this work over the course of a series, we have to specify that it's not just Neverland that is now accessible. But it turns out that all of the lands, all of the public domain lands are sort of adjacent to each other. So right. Neverland, Neverland Wonderland is next to Wonder. Exactly. And mm -hmm. the Oz is over there. And, and also there's a, a darker place that uh, will go unspecified for the moment. And it turns out that the, at first the influence of these places is leaking into the world. So people are taking inspiration from the um, monsters of the dreamlands, even let's say, mm -hmm. and gradually uh, over the course of the series, there's the, uh, a bigger inbreak of creatures from the mystic lands into the ordinary mundane world. I like, you know, you went darker than I was. I was doing it more USA network where it's still called darling. It's still Wendy. She's still a cop and she's, you know, maybe on the homicide detail, maybe she's on, you know, major crimes so we can do thefts and other things. And she's got a partner who is a classic maverick cop. Doesn't play by the rules. Won't grow up. Her partner is Peter. And as she and Peter are, you know, running into these crimes that become ever weirder and less natural, and you can have, you know, uh, ticking clock motifs and, and the rest of it, it becomes apparent that Peter is clued into something a la, you know, Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks, that he's sort of a, a weird, intuitive, holistic crime solver. And Wendy is the, you know, the facts on the ground uh, hardcore. So you've got your Mulder Scully dynamic. And you're also your Murtaugh and uh, Riggs dynamic. And those are absolutely classic. That'll just drive a story forever. And I think I would prefer to have a almost a, a more Twin Peaks sensibility of, is this real? Is Peter just, you know, I mean, we see him, you know, suddenly up on balconies that he couldn't have gotten to, but maybe there was a fire escape. And so we play it as 
what's going on exactly? And then maybe at the end of the first season, we realize that, oh, yes, Peter is uh, from Neverland. He is eternal. He did show up in, you know, 1900. And Wendy's, you know, great, great grandmother, the original Wendy Darling, is still alive somehow. Uh, she must be 120. It's still so spry. And then she says, oh, goodness, have you met Peter again? It happens to a lot of the women in our family. And then and so then we open it up and it's still the core of it is still cop stories, but it has elements of the old Disney show Once Upon a Time or the show that wanted to be Once Upon a Time Grimm or even the Fables comic book. So things from other public domain world do show up and our characters that we met in the first season are revealed to have been part of this other realm, this, this Wainscott realm. And I think that that has got more legs and I think you can uh, shoot it in the light, which is nice. So that's, that's my pitch, Robin. I'm pitching right. basic. Cable so I, and- my concern with, with your pitch is that in, in today's environment where they measure the ratings in 15 minute increments that you don't have time to get to a whole season to fully become the show. And and I think the rest of it is just our preferences in light versus dark and mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out what whatever they want that minute. Yeah. <laughs> light or dark is the, is the pitch that uh, we go with. But in both cases, aside from the tone, a typical episode would be Wendy investigates a case. And I guess in your version, it seems to maybe possibly have a, a fairy tale. metaphorical right. or allegorical or supernatural element. And in... My version, it more clearly does, and that is then solved, and then it sort of builds. So, really, we're talking about tone, and we're talking about the speed at which it fully reveals itself. Yeah, I think the sort of the the checkpoint for for my show is is, is not just the shows that I talked about, but the X-Files, right? That it's very much, you maybe have some mythology, but you're doing Monster of the Week or Case of the Week. And is it UFOs or, and Bigfoots or is it just a weirdo that, you know, maybe you lean a little more to sometimes do just a weirdo more than often than X-Files did. But it's that kind of show where the question becomes part of it as opposed to the straight up, you know, oh, I, I sure hope they stop Tweedledee and Tweedledum from killing identical twins or whatever is going on. Yeah, I, I would be more inclined even to make it a, a straight up police procedural that has this sort of supernatural element in the background. So it's not like you're like Mulder who would tackle the entire breadth of the 40 in times, mm-hmm. but rather, you know, she's a homicide cop, but there's a whole bunch of increasingly peculiar uh, homicides. And sometimes maybe even sort of, you know, a la the ghost whisperer or whatever that she just uses Peter's insights or the, her ability to kind of start to glimpse the uh, realm beyond to sort of see what's going on and use supernatural techniques to kind of move her uh, case along. And I assume that to make the story function at all in your version, after we've had the big reveal of Peter in prison, when Peter solves that first very high profile case, he's given a conditional work release so that I'd leave him as, as a Hannibal Lecter in jail for a while. And then that would be the, possibly the, the season changer is that he uh, gets it. Or uh, in fact, she finds out that he's been framed Mm -hmm. and that although he got up to some shady things after they split up, he didn't in fact commit the crime that he set out to commit. I always said it was that, that tiny girl that did it. Right. Tinkerbell. You know, even he's not cooperating, right? He's, he's willing to take the rap because there's some. He's taking the rap for Tinkerbell. That's loyalty. Mystical reason that he's, uh, you know, he's just waiting possibly because you know, he's safely warded as long as he's in prison. That might be mm-hmm. a fun thing. I said, he's not looking to be sprung. And then once he's, you know, out of 
Because there's no environment that kills ley lines harder than uh, a federal penitentiary. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing but cold iron yeah. and uh, thick stone walls all around it. And that would be a fun twist, right? Is that the, the B story that runs through the episodic things is that she's slowly beginning to solve this cold case that he went down for and prove that he didn't do it. But he doesn't want out. Right. And then once he's out, he's sort of, uh, you know, he's not, it's not like Lucifer where he's working cases with her. But rather, uh, you know, he remains sort of an, an advisory a somewhat a reluctant advisory figure. So more Angel in Buffy than Mulder and Scully for right. you. Right, yeah. Well, I think when the writer's strike ends, we can uh, go and pitch that. But until now, it's time for us to uh, look at this exciting commercial and then look at whatever hut or segment lies on the other side of it. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to weave our way up the crickety cobweb stairs. We're going to stop in the landing. We're going to wave at the King of the Fire Salamanders, who's there safely in a painting, although he can talk to us in a wink, he's very friendly. We're going to head on into the parlor of the consulting occultist, who has, I think, put on some garb of the early modern age, because uh, he's going to uh, tell us all about a figure who we think of, quite rightly, as the starting point for a lot of science and mathematical thought. But if you think that science and magic have been thought of as two separate things for a long, long time. Well, Isaac Newton is here with his iconic apple uh, to possibly throw it at your head because can even someone who was born in 1642 and lived until 1726 had an integrated worldview in which supernatural forces were part of the natural world that they were trying to describe. And of course, you would try to figure out how they worked in order to... uh, I don't know, become immortal or get a thing that would turn ordinary objects into gold, which, by the way, made kings nervous. Well, <laughs> the thought of some sort of economy collapsing stone, they didn't like that so much. I'm not sure that they disliked it so much as they disliked the idea of anyone else having a thing that turned stuff into gold. Yeah, it's fine if there's one and you have right. it, but yeah. a bunch of weird, you know, guys with uh, chemical speckles on their roughs of their collars that that's not good but for example uh, as an example of the overlap 
There is a very early Newton quote from the 1660s, 1662, I think, that says the inimaginably small portion of active material of nature's secret fire is the material soul of all matter. And if you want to read it one way, you're saying that's Newton barely grasping at atomic fission. And if you want to read it the other way, you say that's Newton talking about alchemy. And in fact, Newton worked on alchemy for his whole life. I, I guess before we would continue, we should like explain the main achievements that we remember him for today. Uh, so he developed the laws of motion and gravity and substantially improved the telescope. He was the one who figured out color theory and how a prism will tell you about that. And then, of course, everybody's favorite, calculus. Right. And actually, you mentioned his color theory, and that's another example of the overlap between Newton the mystic and Newton the, what we say now, scientist. Because when he broke light down into color bands, there were six. And he said, well, that can't be. There's seven important everything. There's seven planets. Uh, seven's the mystical number. There has to be seven. And so he looked really hard until he discovered indigo between blue and purple. So Newton's all that rainbow memorization you did, Roy G. Biv, that's not just so that Biv you know, sounds good when you say it out loud. It's because Newton needed there to be seven colors. And because he's Isaac Newton, no one ever stands up uh, and says, indigo is fake, but indigo is fake. I mean, it's a real color. It's an indigo dye, but it's not necessarily any realer than any other color between or secondary uh, color. the main color bands. So that is an example of where Newton is informing his science with his supernatural or mystical concerns. Right. And I think people project more contemporary attitudes onto him because most of his alchemical writing was not published during his lifetime. Yeah. And so once it was discovered, it was like, oh, he's a secret alchemist. But it seems more like he was just like a perfectionist who didn't release speculation. If he wasn't sure about something, he didn't publish. Right. I mean, he didn't release calculus until like 40 years after he discovered it, which caused all the fights with Leibniz. And, and so he was waiting to fit, to finish alchemy before he published it. Another, you know, probably uh, weighed on him somewhat was that alchemy was technically a crime. And for him, even as well connected as he was, even as the head of the Royal Mint, which he was at the tail end of his life. The one he's especially a crime for is if you're head of the Royal Mint. And, and again, the reason alchemy is a crime is the aforementioned king thinks you might find a way to destabilize the economy. Also, king thinks you might make a poison that can't be detected. That was another big concern. That is also bad. So anyway... But Newton begins by copying out other alchemical texts in his own handwriting, making his own emendations in them. Then he begins recording his own research, his own experiments. Newton was an inveterate note taker. And so what has come down to us after the vagaries of time is about the same amount of work as his published scientific work is about the same volume in his alchemical work. And we have to remember that that, that, that survived a fire in his lab in the 1680s. So it may have burned up a lot more of his alchemical work and uh, that he had, he had a sort of a prickly attitude towards other scientists and any indication that he was, uh, off doing some alchemical thing would have made like Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke make fun of him and he couldn't have stood that. So there was a degree to which he was, I'll, I'll show them all. How dare they think about laughing at me at the Academy? I'm Isaac Newton. It, it was an age of salty scientists, although I'm yes. not sure if we've had an unsalty scientific age. Right. But this was extra salty. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the result is that his alchemical papers are left unpublished 
they pass down through his, his niece and she consults with a theologian and says, what should we publish? And the theologian looks at it and says, well, not as theology. That's for damn sure, because he was also writing basically Arianism, which in theory meant he should not have held a, a chair at Cambridge because he could not have sworn to the Nicene Creed. Uh, tell people what Arianism is. Of Arianism is the belief that the sun and the God are separate beings, that Jesus is not a triune being. Jesus is a person uh, on whom the mantle of God, the Holy Spirit, whatever, rested long enough for him to do miracles and preach. And then he was just, just died like people do, didn't get resurrected. That's crazy talk. Or if he did get resurrected, he got resurrected in a sort of a physical bodily way, like Enoch in the Bible, not in a spiritual way that, that means salvation to everyone. So pretty big departure. <laughs> yes. And this is because Newton is also influencing his mystical thought with his scientific thought. And he probably calculated the amount of energy that would be released if Jesus's body had all turned to light at once and said, that would have blown the roof off Jerusalem. That didn't happen. Ergo, that didn't happen as opposed to it's a miracleizing Newton. There's no math involved. It's just God, which was fine for many scientists before and since. So he also had a lot of other fun stuff. He wanted to recalculate the chronology of the Bible. He was a early chron chrono nut about that. But the majority of those uh, magic stuff that he was working on, the supernatural stuff, the unorthodox stuff, the elliptony was alchemy and it was vast quantities of his papers. Anyway, his niece shows it to a theologian. The theologian says, don't publish the theology. Also, don't publish the alchemy. And the theologian takes some of the manuscripts for himself. The rest go into her family, and they marry into the family of the Earls of Portsmouth. So the Earls of Portsmouth own the documents down to 1936, when the current Earl, Gerard Wallop, ninth Earl of Portsmouth, needs money to fund his proto-Nazi movement. And right, and, and that's the then-current Earl. Right, yes. Then, yeah, then-current, now now the ninth. If he was still around, that would be proof there's something in those papers. That would demonstrate two things. One, alchemy, and two, uh, secret Nazi magic. But anyway, he sells the papers at Sotheby's, and when they come out and it's all alchemy, everyone is blown away. John Maynard Keynes, the economist, buys most of it and then refuses to publish it. That's because it turns out Keynesian economics is magic. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, Keynes' collection goes to an eccentric collector of Isaac Newton's other alchemical manuscripts, and now it's in the uh, Jewish National University in Jerusalem. So you've got some of it is at Cambridge, some of it is at Jerusalem, and all of it, Robin, is being digitized at the University of Indiana Bloomington where uh, America's premier alchemist and alchemical authority, William R. Newman, is so running the... the adventure that takes you from London, very exciting location, Jerusalem, full of drama and moment and danger, and then Indiana. Well, the fun thing about the project in Indiana, Robin, is that they are experimentally verifying his alchemy. They have built a 17th century chemical lab. They're doing the experiments. Okay, okay, it's interesting again. I withdraw yeah. my previous <laughs> comment. Fooled you. And they've built a, a 17th century chemistry lab. They're using ingredients of the purity that would have been available to Newton, and they're trying to see how much of his alchemy can replicate. As uh, we may have guessed, Newton, in, at least in the manuscripts that survive, did not develop the, uh, the Philosopher's Stone. He did not create the Gehanical Fire, but he did a lot of stuff, and they are running through it, 
document by document, experiment by experiment to see what's the what. And I very much recommend Newton the Alchemist by William R. Newman on that topic if you want, complete with lovely color illustrations of cool alchemical rocks and whatnot. It's a wonderful book. So of the scenarios that write themselves, <laughs> obviously there's the 1936 one about the uh, the heist on Sotheby's mm-hmm. in order to get the bits of the Necronomicon that he rewrote out of his papers before they sell to John Maynard Keynes. Yep. And uh, any contemporary thing, whether it's as a terrorist or Knights uh, Black Agents or This Is Normal Now in the Yellow King, you just have something turning up at that experiment in Bloomington with uh, the yellow sign and skull-like masks and scalloped yellow robes. Uh, need we say more? I, I find it almost impossible to think we need to say more. Newton alchemy is two super strong ingredients anyway. It's a nerd trope all by itself. And um, yeah, I, I love the idea of the Earls of Portsmouth having, you know, kept a hold of all this secret magic so you could do that they were up to some sort of bad doings between 1740 and 1936. And then, you know, the most Nazi of all of them, who was also the poorest and stupidest of them, has to sell the manuscripts. And so you could have some sort of, you know, secret war against the Earls of Portsmouth that I think is part of. Yeah, I did leave out the shooting at, at Nazis part of my previous description of the 30s uh, scenario, didn't I? Yeah, but the, uh, the the secret war with the Earls of Portsmouth over Newton's alchemy is part of uh, Fearful Symmetries by our good friend uh, Steve Dempsey, available from the Pelgrane Press web store. It so writes itself that it's already it's been written. Been, a big chunk of it has already been written. And then uh, speaking of masks, Robin, Newton's death mask was part of what was bought by Kynes. So oh, right. if you're looking for a mask that has seen the uh, secret fire at the heart of creation, or maybe that was a little yellow spark over a black lake, and he just thought it was the secret fire at the heart of creation. Right. There you have well, it. If it's red, it might be Camilla. It could be. Well, having done our job many times over, Ken, it's time for us once more to wave goodbye to our beloved listeners. They can't see us waving, but, uh, you know, sometimes audio mediums are one in which uh, people uh, develop a visual imagination, and I'm sure their visual imagination is also imagining that we'll be back a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelagrain Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Prevent financial gravity from knocking this podcast on the head by joining such alchemical backers as... John Burgess. Scott Jones. Darren Dumay. Robert Dean. And Chris Lydon. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>